All right, bro, hit it. Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is our podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. In today's podcast, we're going to explore the road from Habakkuk to Jesus. After nine or ten weeks in the book of Habakkuk, we designed this podcast to help us understand how Habakkuk fits into the larger storyline of the Bible so that we can bring this sermon series to a fitting conclusion. So whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope this podcast helps you worship local. And today, it's just it's just you and me, dude. No Donafro. We're going to be missing Donnie. No Donafro. No Jodo. My first podcast back since being in Texas, and he's he's not present. Come on, man. That's breaking my heart. Or as my daughter Della calls him, no Joe Fish. No Joe Fish. See Joe Fish? Says that all the time. <laughs> See Joe Fish? <laughs> so, uh, dude, Habakkuk Sermon Series is behind us. Nine or ten weeks in the book of Habakkuk, and now it's... It's done. I can't believe it. What are your What are your thoughts, man? I know. I was just talking to my uh, portion of my community group last night on Zoom, and uh, yeah, we were talking about how this. It feels like it's flown by so quickly because normally when we do uh, a long expositional sermon series, when we normally do an expositional sermon series, it's like a year or a year and some change. And this one was was ten weeks, so <laughs> so yeah, it felt like yeah. it felt like it flew by really quickly. But man, it's been a I've really enjoyed just personally um, us looking into this Habakkuk sermon series for it being such a, a small book and for us looking at it for, you know, just, I, you know, a couple of, couple of months and some change. It's been really impactful for me. And I, I've heard, you know, a lot of stories from people in our church, how impactful it's been for them. Yeah. Yeah. It really has been, man. I've done my Cole thing, which is every time I'm in a book of the Bible and preaching through it. I think, oh, this is the best book in the Bible. <laughs> like, I totally have always thought that. With when we preached Philippians back, back in the first year of Frontier, I was like, Philippians is the best book in the Bible. <laughs> and then when we preached Jonah, I was like, oh, Jonah is the best book of the Bible. And now with Habakkuk, it's like, dude, this is where it's at. Um, where does where does our Habakkuk sermon series rank for you? Like compared to some of our other ones? Oh, that's a good question. Um. I think Exodus is still my favorite. I think that's still number one for me. Um, it, dude, it's it's been exactly a year since we finished our Exodus sermon. Isn't that series. crazy? <laughs> I know that. I know. I know that because Facebook was like, "Hey, Frontier posted this a year ago, and it was the summary sermon on Exodus." Yeah, that's so crazy, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah, so that one's still number one for me. I would say Habakkuk probably. I would put it at a tie with Jonah right now. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I enjoy I enjoyed the exposition of Jonah more, but I think just the time of time of my life that I'm in, Habakkuk has been really good. And then also um one of the first like sermon series I listened to by Matt Chandler whenever I was uh probably seventeen or eighteen was uh, on Habakkuk. So so I kinda it's kinda nostalgic for me. So that's so it's I'm I'm pretty biased. I had a dream a couple nights ago that I was preaching at a conference with Matt Chandler. <laughs> and I, and I got up there, and I for, I had forgotten my notes. And so I, was, I started I started preaching, and uh, everybody just left. They just walked out of the auditorium. I was like, shoot! That's kind of like um, yeah, Paul, Paul's uh, ascension to the third heaven. You're like you get up, you get to the third heaven of preaching at a conference with Chandler, and then God gives you a thorn, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> takes your why, notes away, <laughs> takes my notes away. I think my iPad was broken too because I think I was still thinking about preaching with the iPad a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I know a man who once tried to. 
preach at a Chandler conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did anything? Did anything stand out to you in Habakkuk? Did anything surprise you? Jolt you? Man, I, I think one of the the new takeaways that I've had from the book of Habakkuk is looking at it as a template for um, deep spirituality and yeah, yeah. communing with God. Uh, I think I ever really noticed. I mean, yeah, obviously you see the dialogue between Habakkuk and and God, but I, I think the way that we structured the sermon series and the way that we preached it really gave me eyes to see, oh, this is, I, I do this in my own life already, but I can look at Habakkuk and now I can make it more intentional in how I do these things. You know, I cry out to God, I wait, I cry out to God, I wait. And it ultimately leads to rejoicing. Though circumstances are difficult, though suffering occurs, I can commune with God and I can rejoice in God at the same, uh, mm. you know, through all of my, through all of my life. So that, that was really helpful for me. It's helped given me, like you're saying, a template for spirituality. So I've even found myself asking a couple church members who I'm, who I get coffee with, "Hey, where are you at spiritually right now? You in Habakkuk chapter one or Habakkuk chapter three? Because <laughs> like that, we, like we really do see the whole spectrum uh-huh. of spirituality. Like in Habakkuk one, he's a complainer. In Habakkuk three, he's a worshiper. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 he cries out and he complains to God, like, hey, you need to fix this. And then God says, okay, I'm, I've got this plan in, in motion. Wait, no, 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 I don't, don't, not that plan. You can't mm. do that. I don't like mm. that. I don't like mm. that option. Just, can we go back and see if there's another one? And then him God, coming to God, if only to... I knew what you were doing. And God's like, okay, here's what I'm doing. And he's like, oh, well, shoot. <laughs> but yeah, and then him coming to terms with, yeah, what God is doing and seeing how God is sovereign. And, you know, he, he knows that. That God is going to do what it takes to to get His people where they need to be, and so that that knowledge of God being a God of salvation leads them to rejoicing. Mm. So, one thing yeah. that one thing that authors talk about, like so, Aubrey Harbaugh in our church right now, she's writing a novel. I think she actually just finished her first draft of it like a couple weeks ago, which is pretty awesome. So, huge shout out to Aubrey. But um, Aubrey talks about treating her characters as though they're alive and have a volition and a will of their own, which is something I've heard from other writers about how you write this little story and then it comes to life and ends up doing things and going ways and making decisions that you actually didn't plan. (laughs) And uh, when you preach, it's kind of like that. Like you've got this sermon series, um, you've got this outline, you've got this plan, but then the sermon series just kind of comes alive and mm-hmm. takes some twists and turns that you didn't see coming. Like, for instance, one thing that surprised me was how much the, the watchtower became a centering force mm-hmm. in the story. Like that, that was really helpful for me and for a lot of people in our church who talked about the watchtower. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, that, that, it's a, such a helpful picture because we view waiting on the Lord or waiting on you know something to change or waiting on an answer as a, a very passive thing. But Habakkuk shows you, oh, it's active. You cry out and then you get up on your watchtower and you wait to see what the Lord is going to do. It's not like he just you know got, got a blanket out and cozied up in his lazy boy and was like, all right, I'll wait and see what the Lord's doing. But he, he gets on the watchtower with this eager expectation and anticipation for the Lord's answer. Yeah, 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 that's right. And so it becomes a really powerful image and metaphor mm-hmm. for what it looks like for us to pray. Yeah. Because it's really deep, but it's also really visceral. Mm-hmm. Like it furnaces your it furnishes your imagination with a lot of different visuals. Exactly. Yeah. So I think from what I've been hearing from people in our church, yeah, this has given them more 
given their faith more texture, more more things to feel, more mm. things to experience. And so I, I think that's that's really helpful in, in a sermon series. Yeah, for sure, dude. And I'm excited to get around to our conversation about the road from Habakkuk to Jesus. This is going to be a good one, dude. I was really excited when I was doing a little bit of prep work this morning. Um, I really want to show our church how Habakkuk fits into the overarching story of the scriptures and ends up pointing us to Jesus. It's going to be a sweet, messy road this morning. Before we do that, <laughs> we missed you. How was how was Texas a couple week, a, a week ago? It was good, man. We um, yeah, we went down. I have a, one supporting church. Uh, I actually grew up in that church and was on staff at that church. So they they brought us down. We were one of their North American partners in in missions, and so got to go down there and brag about Frontier Church and the things that that we're seeing God do in the life of our people. I got to talk about the generosity of Frontier Church through a pandemic. I got to talk to, mm, talk mm-hmm. about how God's been using Frontier Churches. Um, a safety net in, in a certain sense for people who've been burnt out by church. And um, mm-hmm. we've seen people re-engage with Christ and follow him in a new and a fresh way. So that was really fun. Just getting to, to brag before probably, I don't know, maybe 800, 900 people about how cool frontier church is and how, um, how we're, we're this family of Jesus followers in Des Moines. So that was really fun. And, you know, got to see my, my parents is the first time they got to have all four of their grandkids in the same location. Cause my sister and brother-in-law, they moved to Colorado Springs at the beginning of the year with their little boys. So it was cool to get to see everybody um, again. So that was fun. That's pretty sweet. Cause Texas, like does de- like Texas definitely doesn't have the same perspective on Iowa as we do. Like we kind of see Iowa as part of the Bible belt and there's, God's doing some cool stuff in Iowa, but like Texas does not view Iowa as like part of the Bible belt. Like Texas kind of views Iowa as like, dude, that is secular city <laughs> up there in the North. Yeah. Yeah. I was, t- yeah, I talked about, you know, there's, yeah, we definitely still have uh, layers of Christendom in, in Iowa. It's not uncommon to meet somebody who goes to church or who grew up in church, but yeah, they, they're like, Oh, those, you know, Midwesterners, didn't they vote Democrat a couple of times? So it's, yeah, that definitely is their conception. So I was just like, yeah, when we, I think when I'm, when we moved to Des Moines, like one of the stats that was being tossed around was there, you know, a hundred SBC churches in Iowa and they were classifying 90 ish of them as dead or dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since we've moved here, it's been really cool to see this church planting movement take place not just in the Des Moines metro, but in rural Iowa, you know, frontier, we've got to be a part of that as sending out a church planter to a, you know, a dying town um, where churches are are struggling. So it's, yeah. So I I was, it was really fun to be able to talk about that. And, you know, they're part of the North American mission board as well. So I got to talk about like, Hey, when you, you give to the cooperative program, whenever you give to the Mm -hmm. Annie Armstrong Easter offering, you put money in our church's bank account. You put money in, you know, your and I's, um, our wallets for a period of time whenever we just started frontier. So yeah, so that was really, I got really energized off of that. Good dude. That's awesome. We missed you, but that's such a, that's such a sweet thing for you to be able to do, man. Like, like I really, I really do want the people at frontier church who, who, who tithe to frontier and give faithfully to frontier to know that they're primarily funding our ministry to them. Um, but there's also a sense in which, like, I really believe that the church funds your ministry mm-hmm. to that church in Texas. Yeah. And, and, and our church funds my ministry to Bondurant for our high school where I get to coach wrestling and mm-hmm. talk to kids about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. We're, it's, it's, if you were to trace all, if you were to earmark all the dollars, it's really interesting to see where that, that, that money goes. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that because anyway, we get, I can talk a lot about 
this. Yeah, but, we could. We could. But we should. I, I we should Trish. sometime. We should do that. That would yeah. be a good podcast. Yeah, that would be. Um, but I, I want to circle around to the road from Habakkuk to Jesus. Here's the big... We, we finished our sermon series on Sunday with that sweet sermon about rejoicing in the Lord. The big question that I want to ask is, is God going to be a man of his word? So like you look at Habakkuk and you kind of look at this sweeping overarching story that happens in Habakkuk 1 through 3, and you see God say and prophesy some pretty crazy things. He says, um, the Chaldeans are going to storm the gates and they're going to conquer Judah and put put Judah into Babylonian captivity. Does this happen? Will God be a man of his word? And the other big thing that we see come back come come through with Habakkuk 1 through 3 is eventually down the road, even though God uses Babylon to accomplish his purposes, Babylon is going to end up being destroyed. And we see that through God's five woes in the book of Habakkuk. And again, the big question is, does that happen historically? Will God be a man of his word? So let's start out with Jeremiah 39. As Habakkuk comes to a close, will will Judah end up getting stormed by the Babylons? Go ahead and read that for us. Yeah. This is this is mind-blowing. It's kind of gruesome, though. Yeah, just a, just a, just a tad. Um, so, in the nine, ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal... Sar Ezir of Samgar, Nebu Sar Sakim, the Rab Saris, Nagar Sar Ezir, the <laughs> Rab Mag. Great names for any of you parents out there who don't know what to name your yeah. next kid. With all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went toward Araba. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. Uh-oh. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house in the house of all the people, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left mm-hmm. in the city, those who had deserted to him, and people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Whew. Now I see why you made me read this one. I know. (laughs) Okay, so that's a lot. But what we're seeing in Jeremiah 39 is the fulfillment of Habakkuk about the Chaldeans and Babylonians storming the gates of Judah, conquering them, and then leading them into Babylonian captivity. So how how in the world, how did this happen? So here's... Here's the way that this happened historically. The, the king of Judah at the time, who was Zedekiah, had an alliance with Babylon. But things between Babylon and Egypt started to get a little bit shaky. And what King Zedekiah, Zedekiah did is he revolted against Babylon and the alliance that he had with Babylon. And instead, 
he stabbed their back and he entered into an alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now that shift, that shift in alliance ticked off the Babylonians. They were like, uh, no, you're not just going to shift your allegiances and go over to our rivals. So that's what brings upon Judah what they call the siege of Jerusalem. Um, and what's weird is that Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, had warned Zedekiah to not do this. Like, don't, don't do this. And he didn't heed Jeremiah's advice, and it brought upon the destruction that the Lord had promised. So this becomes like a really big moment in the life of Israel. Um, like, how, how would you interpret this event if you're familiar with Habakkuk? Oh, man. I can't imagine what it yeah, would have been like to yeah, experience this. Because you, you, know, you were told that this, was, that this thing was going to happen. Like God instructed Habakkuk to, you know, write this thing down, make the letters big, like what is going to happen? And people, you know, day by day, as the, as the time begins to draw closer, whether they knew it or not, you know, just probably you know, wake up scared. Like, is today going to be the day? What's going to happen? And then you hear about your king starting to do some stuff that is going to bring oh, into reality. Right. Yeah. What's going to happen? You, could be like, you had to have been like, dude, what in the world are you doing? Yeah, you know that what's you know that God has said that we're going to be overtaken, and you are you're you know you're sticking your fingers in the eyes of the guy who holds us in his hands right now. Yeah, yeah, because like the thing about Habakkuk is that it so clearly prophesies um, about the about the Babylon's conquering Judah, but it doesn't give out the details. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't give out the exact timeline. So a lot of that would be left up to the to the imaginations of the people. And so I, I would guess that if I had read Habakkuk, and I was underneath the rule and reign of King Zedekiah. I, you got to imagine that there were tons of people being like, I wonder what that's going to look like. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to come true. Yeah. How exactly, why, why would Babylon even storm us? We have an alliance with them. And then you hear about King Zedekiah backing out of that alliance <laughs> and making an alliance with Egypt. And you're like, dude, yeah. read your Bible. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That... I, I really don't, you know, I'm trying to think of a good parallel from from other points in history, but I just think, what in the world were you thinking, dude? Yeah, like you, <laughs> like just a, just a, from a military perspective, this was a bad idea, and from a just a geopolitical perspective, this is a bad idea. Yeah, let alone the fact yeah. that you've been told that this group of people is being raised up by God to punish His people, right? But it's also a great example of how God sovereignly works through kings to accomplish whatever his purposes are. Yep. So God sovereignly raises up King Zedekiah and sovereignly uses him as a tool in his own hands mm-hmm. to discipline and, and punish. Well, I should say discipline his people who yeah. have who have uh, who have committed idolatry against them. This is like this is a big moment. And the descriptions that we see in Jeremiah 39, which we also see in 2 Kings, are kind of brutal. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they, the Babylonians, they, they storm the gates of Judah. They siege the city. They end up cornering King Zedekiah. And when they capture him, I mean, what do they do? When they capture him, they murder all of his sons in front of him. And then it says they put out his eyes. Does that mean that they poked his eyes out? I would imagine so. Yeah, that's that, brutal. That, yeah, that's not an uncommon tactic um, for you know, especially in that that period of time, it's just the utter humiliation of their king. Mm-hmm. They they kill his sons 
then they take out his eyes. So the last thing right. he sees is, you know, his city burning, his sons being murdered, the his the kingdom that he was over overseeing. That's the last thing that he sees, and they keep him alive with those last thoughts, those last visions. Mm-hmm. The last thing you see is everything that you know being destroyed, everything that oh, you hold dear. So it's yeah, it's just his total humiliation. So he's you know the Babylon Babylonians are just are making an example out of him. So, yeah, I never, I never thought about the last thing that he would would have seen. Then was to see Judah get conquered mm-hmm. and to see his son slaughtered before him. And by plucking, by poking out his eyes, they're forcing him to live in that moment, yeah. kind of forever. Right? Yeah, because why they keep him alive? Wow, just yeah. to shame him. You, know, you think of, of Sam- chains, yeah, yeah. Think of think of of Samson. You know, they gouged that dude's eyes out too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's you got. It's really interesting if you look at the son of meta level you've got one you've got three kings going on here and one is king of all the kings you've got yahweh the true Hmm. king of israel you've got the unrighteous king of the pagan king of babylon and then you've got the the shifty apostate king of of judah so this is really interesting to see those three things taking place and as you mentioned earlier god raising up kings appointing kings at certain times to accomplish his purposes long walk to babylon yep Woo. do you know how far away babylon was from jerusalem and judah i don't know that like mileage wise i can look it up i don't know off the top do you know no i don't i don't i just imagine that being a very brutal walk yeah like each step as you're mar- being marched against your will into Babylon, I just imagine being like, oh, man, God told us this was going to happen. Oh, man, I can't believe that Zedekiah broke that treaty. Oh, man, I feel like we could have avoided this. That would just be a long, 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 long walk of shame. don't know if this is accurate, but I'm seeing eight days of a worth of walking. An eight-day walk. Boy, that's tough. Yeah. So they go into Babylonian captivity. And this is kind of the next step on the road from Habakkuk to Jesus. This is, so they go into Babylonian captivity. And this is Jeremiah 29 that describes God's purpose for them in captivity. Can you read Jeremiah 29 for us? Yeah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, Hmm. but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Mm-hmm. For, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from among the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, okay, so there's so much that's surprising about this text. Um, what? Let me start. Here's what's surprising to me. Um, they're in Babylonian captivity. Um, the Babylons, these are the people who who just conquered Judah. These are the people who just burned down the entire city. These are the people who literally just destroyed your temple, which is where the glory of God resided. It was the, the physical meeting place of God with men. It was heaven and earth overlapping. And these people destroyed that in front of your eyes. Not only that, but they, they took your king captive, slaughtered his sons right in front of them, and then carved his eyeballs out with a knife and marched you from the promised land into Babylonian exiles. So what's surprising to me is that you would expect for God's instructions in Babylonian captivity to be some type of revolt. This is the Babylonians, man. They just humiliated you. I would expect the Lord to say, hey, here's what you're going to do. I want you to start this plan by which you are going to end up conquering Babylon. You're going to end up going an eye for an eye and destroying them. And instead, what are God's instructions to his people? It's to seek the welfare of Babylon. What? So that's surprising to me, man. Yeah. And the the descriptions of how they go about seeking the welfare of the city. Oh, dude, we got to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's not just like this vague, uh, yeah, just be kind of, kind of be nice to people, but he says to intercede for the city. He says to plant gardens, to build homes and live in them, to make babies and to, to, to get your kids to, to marry so that they can make babies, um, really seek the, the, the flourishing of, of that city. And which is, you know, it's so, so interesting. And yeah, it is, it's so upside down because you would Mm -hmm. think, you know, God, you want me to pray for this place? You want me to pray for these people? You want me to seek the good of these people? And so it's, it's yeah, just so it's so counterintuitive, and I, you know, totally we we talked about this a bit in our uh, First Peter summer series because you see the parallels of of this text, and then with First Peter of yep. of you know Peter instructing the church to you know to live in good conduct, to be hospitable, to pray for the authorities, uh, to pray for the people who are oppressing them. So it's God's way of going about things is upside down compared to ours. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and like especially especially that word welfare where he says seek the welfare of the city which is Babylon. Seek the welfare of Babylon where I have sent you into exile. And that word welfare, we looked at this a couple of years ago in a sermon series, but that word welfare in the text is shalom. And the word shalom totally has the vibe of wholeness. Mm-hmm. So he's he's saying Seek the wholeness, seek the health, seek the peace, seek the welfare of of Babylon. So wholeness as opposed to fracture. So think spiritual wholeness, social wholeness, financial wholeness. Um, But this is surprising because the Israelites up until this point would have probably assumed that their wholeness as a people group would come at the shattering of Babylon. Mm -hmm. So when Jeremiah starts to prophesy you would probably expect a plan for the Lord to shatter Babylon. What you wouldn't expect is, hey, seek the financial, social, spiritual wholeness of Babylon, and in their health, you're going to find your health. It's just—it's crazy that God ties the well-being of Israel to the well-being of a pagan nation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? 
Yeah, man. I mean, this is a uh, in comparison is minor, but as over the last five years, you have one political party in power, and then now we've got another political party oh, in power. Let's go, let's go. And yes. So you know, people perceive themselves based on you know what letter comes after someone's name uh, whenever they vote, and if that person is opposite of who they voted for, then I'm. I'm now an exile in my own land. I, you know, this this guy's president now, and so I'm an exile. This guy's, a, you know, the president now, and I'm, you know, oppressed and downtrodden. Um, and so it's you view yourself kind of as an insurgent in this foreign kingdom, trying to lead, you know, a political revolt by your social media posts and whatever. But um, it's really like if we want to draw that parallel, obviously it's a totally different circumstance. But um, drawing that parallel, like. If you perceive yourself as to as an exile and you're the place where you live, the state or the country, um, what do you do? Well, we look here and say, well, we're to seek the welfare of this of this city or this state or this nation. Dude, yes, yes. To pray, you know, and that's that was you know, what was so interesting about the early church is that they they did that as well. Like they they weren't trying to lead this revolution, right? They, and you see Jesus rebuking his disciples for trying to do that or expecting him to be, you know, the king on this, you know, giant white horse with a sword on his sword. And he's just mm-hmm. murdering fools. Like he comes riding in on a donkey and he rebukes Peter for trying to lead a revolution by, you know, by trying to, he incited violence against the guards who were coming to arrest him. So it's just really, man, it's, I, we need to learn how to be a people like this. Frontier needs to Christians yeah, yeah. in America. We need to um, because there might come a day where we, our nation, looks more like some nations where our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. Yeah, probably. Pro- I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, do you think that? So, do you think that Jesus did Jesus see Rome as a one to one equivalent with Babylonian captivity? I mean, he had to, right? He loved like Jesus loved Jeremiah. Yeah, I mean, they were they were in their land, but they were. They were not calling their shots. They were still in exile. Mm-hmm. They're still in exile to a to a certain extent because, yes, they were they were in the promised land. Yes, they had their temple, um, but their temple had been perverted. Their you know Israeli uh, leadership was was a puppet. He was a shadow figure from Rome. Rome was controlling everything. Rome was taxing them. Rome was telling them what to do and when they could do it. Um, so yeah, I think Jesus very much perceived himself as this, and you see his ministry. He's going out and he's giving little, little um, flashes of light of what wholeness looks like. He heals people. He mm-hmm. feeds people. Mm-hmm. He raises people back from the dead. He's he takes time out of his. He's you know on his way to heal somebody or resurrect somebody, and he lets a a woman with internal bleeding be healed. Mm-hmm. You know he so he he gives us these these snapshots of what wholeness looks like. He's imaging what new creation is going to look like, where disease, where famine, where death, where pain, where sorrow, like they're going to be eradicated ultimately. But he's in doing so he's, yeah, he's seeking the welfare of the people that he encounters. In a lot of ways that you, you could summarize Jesus's mission that way, Mm -hmm. that Jesus saw it as his mission statement to seek the welfare of Rome. Mm Mm-hmm. Where he was sent into exile by by the father, um, I mean, he heals Roman soldiers. Yeah, those are basically Babylonians. Mm-hmm. He calls a tax collector, <laughs> yeah. who was yeah. a, a person who was oppressing his own people, mm-hmm. um, 
at the ha- by you know the commission of Rome, and he calls this guy and transforms his life. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. So back to Babylonian <laughs> captivity. <laughs> we, we, sorry, we got to the road from Habakkuk yeah. to Jesus way too quickly there. So so back to back to Babylonian captivity. One thing that I find surprising about it is that there are these false prophets. He says in Jeremiah twenty nine. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and don't listen to their dreams, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What's happening is there are these other prophets in Babylon who are like, hey, we're going to be out of here in seven years. It's going to be really, really, really quick. Don't dig in. Don't root yourself deeply. We're going to be out of Babylon and back to the promised land really, really shortly. And God says, no, 70 years. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, then I'll visit you. So that's where God's strategy comes from. Um, That's why God's strategy in Babylon is do good things that take a long time. Mm -hmm. God gives them what one theologian refers to as thinking about three generations of faithfulness. Long-term resolve, build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, houses. You know those structures that indicate that you're here to stay? Build those. Mm -hmm. Gardens. You know those things where you invest a lot of sweat into today and you get fruit from them in a couple seasons? Plant them. Marriages. You know those time-consuming things that require a lifetime of commitment and work through difficult seasons? Do that. Have your kids do that. Children. You know those things that take up all your time and energy and effort? Have them and raise them. This is thinking three generations of faithfulness forward. Mm-hmm. It's a great strategy. Yeah. I mean, he's you know, the, the, literally seeing grandchildren being brought into existence and raising those grandchildren, you know, just... Kind of like our goal of being our, you know, we want to be our, we want to plant our grandchildren's church was one of our goals that we had at the beginning of Frontier. And so, yeah, it's like we're, we are sojourners in this world still. Mm-hmm. We're not at our ultimate resting place, but we, we want to communicate that we are, we're in it for the long haul. We don't just want to plant a church that's, you know, trendy for our, ourselves. Right. Like we want right. to, we want to do things in a way that maybe our grandkids could say, oh yeah, this, my parents were a part of this church and my grandparents were a part of this church and they were part of the original group that, that God used to start this church. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, those things communicate permanence. Like it's, it's just, he, he's, you know, trying to get them to, you know, the one, one of the ways I'm thinking about this is settle in, you know, just God planted yeah, Adam right. and Eve in the garden and settled them in. He's brought them into exile, the opposite of the garden, but he's, he's getting them to settle in to, to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to be here for a while, so don't, don't get it bitter. Don't resent where you live. Do the exact opposite. Seek mm-hmm. its wholeness. Try to make it a little bit like Eden here. So God's people are in Babylonian captivity. They're in it for like 70 years. Um, they're building houses. They're planting gardens. They're having kids. They're investing in their marriages. This is all good. God commands that. But they also knew Habakkuk. And so because they knew Habakkuk, they knew that God would pronounce these woes upon Babylon that he promises in Habakkuk chapter 2. The big question is, does that end up happening? Is God a man of his word? So in Isaiah 40, you see this amazing prophecy about God promising to return his people to the promised land from Babylon. How does that happen? You want to read this for us, dude? Yeah. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Awesome prophecy. God is saying, I'm taking you guys back to the promised land. Make straight in the desert a way. We're, we're going, baby. We're going back home. So historically, how does this happen? Well, the woes that God pronounces upon Babylon end up coming through Persia. What ends up happening historically, I think in around 538 BC is what most historians think. Around 538 BC is when uh, the captivity of Israel formally ends, and that happens because there's the Persian conqueror of, of Babylon. It happens through a dude whose name is Cyrus the Great. And so Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, ends up conquering Babylon, and he ends up giving the Jews permission to return back home to the promised land. This is interesting. We are talking a little bit about this before we started recording this, but here's what Isaiah even says about... about um, about Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. This comes from Isaiah. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. That ends up happening. Mm -hmm. So Persia ends up conquering Babylon and so, like, what are you thinking? If you're you're in Babylonian captivity, you've heard that God is going to conquer the the Babylons, and then all of a sudden Persia starts to come in. Like, what are you thinking if you're in their position? <laughs> yeah, like um, a portion of the text from last Sunday's sermon, um, at the end of verse sixteen, you see Habakkuk say, "Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us." So this is already... That's what makes him shiver, right? Yeah. And so like you, you've got this coming about. He says, yet I will quietly wait. But yeah, man, you, if you start to hear some rumors of, hey, those those uh, this Cyrus the Great guy is getting pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Like what's what's going to happen? Or is this going to be the time? This is kind of around the time that we were you know expecting to leave this captivity, this exile. Is this, maybe this is going to be the guy who's going, God's going to use to take over Babylon and maybe we'll get freed at his hands, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. There had to be this, yeah, 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 yeah. this expect this anticipation that they were, that they were living in, you know, it's, and it's interesting again to see God appoint and raise up a king to accomplish his purposes. <laughs> he used one king to punish another king, and now he's using another, this king to punish the king who punished the king. So, just like seeing, you know, this just speaks so clearly to God's sovereignty and, and God's eternal kingship versus the, the temporary nature of earthly kings. And I love, to, I love talking about this stuff, too, because uh, sometimes we tend to view the Bible as taking place in some, like, long, long, long ways fictional galaxy with Star Wars. And no, like it happened in real places and real times with real kings. And you've got Israel and you've got Judah and you've got the Babylons and you've got the Babylonians, you've got the Chaldeans, and then you've got the Persians. Like Christianity and and Judaism took place within the real world. Mm-hmm. This is so helpful to know. Yeah. I mean, that's before we started uh, recording, we were you know talking about how how rich the Bible is. And the more you can get yourself enveloped into... Um, 
the the historicity of of these moments and when these things are being written and what they're talking about it, it just helps you make more sense of what's going on it helps it gives you more handles to hold on to this so you, you just think about these people groups that god is raising up these people groups that god is um you know going to use to overtake other people groups it's like these are in these stories aren't just you know, fictional stories these are historical accounts of God doing real things with real people mm-hmm. for real purposes. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I, what I'm thinking if if I'm in Babylonian captivity and then Cyrus the Great comes and he conquers Babylon, what's on my mind is whose team is this guy on? <laughs> is he going to be favorable to my family mm-hmm. and to the rest of the people who worship Yahweh or not? How's this going to go down as there's this transfer of power from Babylon to Persia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Like that's, you know, I wonder if the saints were praying, these Old Testament believers are praying, God, use this dude to free us. God, use this dude to free us. We want to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, I've built this house here and I made a, you know, made some really nice gardens over the course of these uh, past decades. Um, but I would kind of like to plant a garden and build a home back in the homeland. That's right. So, yeah, it'd be, yeah, man. There's so many. Yeah, that had to be an interesting tension to live in. I'm, Huge, I'm right? praying for the welfare of this city, but I'm also praying for my family's welfare back in our our former city. So that's kind of yep, that's still weird tension to live in. I'm really excited to take my kids to the promised land too, because mm-hmm. if if I'm a if I'm a faithful if I'm a faithful Israelite and I'm in Babylonian captivity and I'm raising my kids in Babylonian captivity, every night when I tuck my kids into bed. I'm telling them about the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm telling them, you know, back back in the promised land, Russell, like we we built this temple as the place where God would dwell with his people. And when we built it, the glory of God descended upon it and filled the temple with light. And everybody shouted and worshiped. And we knew that God was with us. Dude, you got to see it. Mm-hmm. Della, I can't wait for you to see the promised land. And the temple, that's where that's where we stored the ark with all those important writings from our prophets and from Moses. And that's where God's word is. And that's where God's presence is. I can't wait for you to see the promised land. Mm-hmm. So when Cyrus the Great conquers, I'm thinking, oh, whose team is he on? Yep. Is he is he gonna is he gonna increase the persecution? Is he gonna keep us in captivity? Or is he gonna let us go home? Mm-hmm. And in the first reign as a king over the Israelites, in his first year of his reign, it gets, this is awesome. What ends up happening is Cyrus is prompted by God to decree that all the Jewish people who wanted to can return to their land for this purpose. And he also decrees that the temple in Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And so this is where it gets really interesting. We can't prove this, but some people think that Cyrus also also sent them back to the promised land with some of the sacred golden rubble, which had been taken from the first temple and funded with a considerable sum of money, uh, the money that they needed to buy the building materials to build the second temple. Mm. So this dude is on your side. <laughs> He's like, you guys can go. If you want to go back, go back. In fact, go build another temple. I know how important that was to you. Here's some money. Here's some resources. Here's some materials. That's pretty awesome, dude. It's a good sign. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. So God's people get out of exile in Babylon. They, 
end up marching through that desert highway through the wilderness back to the promised land. And they end up getting back to the promised land. And they end up even building a second temple. This is epic. This is Ezra chapter 3. We see a second temple being built in the promised land after Babylonian captivity. This is a huge moment for the people in Israel. Self, you want to read it? Yeah. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward, toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, or of houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud mm. voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's we- from the s- sounds of the people's weeping, Dang. for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Okay, so we preached about this during Christmas time last year in our Advent sermon series. But this is a tumultuous passage. There's mm-hmm. so much here. You've got the joy of getting back from Babylonian exile. You've got the joy of being back in your promised land. You have the joy of building the sec- second temple. You lay the foundation, and all of the young people see this second temple get built. And they're cheering and they're psyched and they're doing backflips and high fiving and chest bumping. But the old people aren't. Mm-hmm. The old people who had seen the first temple, what are they doing? They're weeping with a loud voice when they see the second temple. So you've got some people who are rejoicing. You've got some people who are lamenting. Um, what's, what's going on here? Yeah, this is like returning to Eden and there's no tree of life. Oh yes, it is, isn't it? Like the, you know, these the people are they're like, yeah. I mean, this text is pretty visceral. It's like you couldn't distinguish the shouts of joy from the 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 moans of of weeping that the presence of God had not come back into this temple. Mm-hmm. Like that is the heart wrenching, snot crying experience. This would have been for the people who had they were around for the first temple. Yeah. That's, yeah. Again, another tension that's being lived in here. You've got yeah, yeah, two groups of people that are like, okay, yeah, this is cool. We got our temple, but it's not like it used to be. It's not like the glory days. It's not the glory days. There's something really, really important missing from the second temple. Um, it's it's smaller. That's a big deal. It's not as beautiful as the first temple. That's a big deal. But that's not the thing that disappointed them the most, right? The thing that disappointed them in the most is the most important thing about the temple. You know, they would have been familiar with the book of Exodus, and they would have been familiar with the first creation of the tabernacle built out in the wilderness, where they build this tabernacle. And what makes it special, if you read Exodus 40, is that once they build it, the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle in flames of fire and brightness of light. There's all this light and it comes to dwell in the tabernacle, and it was a visceral reminder that God was with them. And then when they don't need the tabernacle anymore because they're not running around in the wilderness, they're like, hey, let's let's build a tabernacle that's here to stay. So when they're in Jerusalem in the promised land, they build the first temple. And again, 
Just like with the tabernacle, when they build this temple, they lay the foundations, the glory of God descends upon the temple in flames of fire and brightness. It gets filled with all of this light. And it was a reminder of the hope that God was with them. So when they built this second temple, after they had gone through hell, right, they'd been conquered by Babylon. The promised land had been burned down. They were in captivity in Babylon, and they finally get home. They go through hell together. They build this second temple. They lay the foundation, and there's no glory. No light descends on the temple. All that work, no glory. So the way that they would have felt, I think, is that even though they were in the promised land, they were still in exile. It's so sad. It is, man. Oh, yeah, the, the, what you were talking about or um, using the, you know, telling Russell, you know, bedtime stories of the promised land. It's good. The temple. It's amazing. And you grow, you, like you spend all this time talking to your kids about it and then you mm-hmm. get there and the, the presence of God does not descend on the temple. Oh. Rip your heart out, dude. Yeah. Like a knife through your heart. Mm-hmm. And Russell thinks it's great. Yeah. He's he's among the people group who is like <clears throat> cheering and excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, you don't even know. Yeah. This doesn't measure up. This isn't what I was talking about. The glory of God is missing from this temple. Mm-hmm. So that would have been one of the central dilemmas that people would have wrestled with during the second temple is this problem, this question of, is God really dwelling among us? Is this really all there is? Where's the glory? Where's the light? So as a result, you see all these different Jewish sects pop up. Like you're familiar with a couple of them, right? Mm-hmm. You see all these, it's all, they're almost like Jewish denominations, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> what do you do with this problem? There's uh-huh. no glory in the temple. How do you solve the problem? Yeah, you've got to, you gotta get creative. You gotta try to force some things to happen. <laughs> so yeah, you get the yeah the the beginnings of the the Pharisees, and later you get the then you get the Sadducees, and then yep. you know when the second temple is destroyed, then you rabbinical Judaism starts. Mm-hmm. So they, they they're starting all of these things to yeah to solve the problem of what do we do? The glory of God's not here. What do we do now? Or we don't have a temple now. Uh, what do we do? How do we solve this problem of not being able to you know atone for our sins with you know the sacrifice of a of a, you know a spotless lamb mm-hmm. it's not it's not god's intention yeah yeah so you see the, but he's uh, working on something yeah yeah you see the aseans <laughs> pop up and their solution is to isolate you see the sadducees pop up and they've got a different solution then you've also see this other jewish sect that rises up in response to the absence of God's glory in the temple. You mentioned them. It's a Jewish sect called Pharisees. It's this little school of thought that believes that if the Jews were just a little more obedient, then God's glory would again return to the temple. Mm-hmm. Right? If we were just a little more holy, if we, were, if we obeyed the rules a little bit more, then maybe God's glory would return, but it doesn't work. So they make up more rules, and they make up more rules that they obey, 
but it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So this is how you end up getting the Pharisees that we see in the New Testament. They believe that if you were just strict enough, just holy enough, then God's glory would come back to the temple. You can see how they would think that, right? Yeah, and that's that's so important for people to understand. I mean, I didn't understand. I just thought in my whole life, you know, Pharisees were just these legalistic dudes who, you know, just hated the party. Yeah, bro. just wanted to create rules so they could oppress people. But like learning that, no, they thought they thought they could force the return of God's pr- glory and presence into the temple by doing all the right things. Yeah. So that that adds so much more texture. Yeah, and um, we, like Pharisees, the word Pharisee has been swept up into common usage among Christian circles in a way that's probably unhelpful. Mm -hmm. People use the word Pharisee to just describe somebody who's Mm -hmm. works-based, which which kind of clouds the original meaning of the Pharisees. Like, it was literally like a school. Mm -hmm. It was like a, a school of thought. And they really believed that... If all of God's people were just obedient enough, then they would usher forth the divine return. And you can see how they would think that. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, God gave us these rules and we do those and you know, that'll make him love us. Okay, well, what do we do now? Like, we're in exile. So these people just constantly wrestling with these issues and then they get their second temple built. God's presence isn't there. Okay, maybe you need to start tithing your your spices. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need right. to not socialize with these people. Maybe you need to wash your hands this many more times. Maybe you need to pray like this. Um, you know, it's over and over. We see, you know, like I think about Moses. Um, Moses tries to like lead. You know, this is before he goes out into uh, Midian, but you know, he he kills an Egyptian. And he's, you know, in, this, in doing so, is trying to kind of lead his own revolt, lead his own um, way of of getting Israel out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So these people have these problems. He Moses comes to terms with, okay, this is bad. I understand who I am. I understand that these are my people. I've got to solve this problem. Or you know, that's what I said earlier with with Peter and how he's acting. But you see people missing the point of what's going on. That you know, not understanding that God is is working and willing in these moments, but people, we, we all do this in our everyday life. Oh, if I do, if I go to church all four Sundays out of the month, then God's going to love me more and I'll feel better throughout the week. Or Hmm. I've got to read the, go do all the right Bible studies, have the right systematic theology so I can properly understand who God is. So I can have more of his presence in my life. And those things are all good. Like living a holy life is good, but as we've seen throughout Scripture, God saying, "It's not the actions that I des- that I desire. I desire your devotion. I desire your faithfulness to me." <laughs> and then the story gets even more interesting. This is so fascinating. So this little Jewish school, the Pharisees, ends up producing an energetic, lively, talkative little man who ends up changing the face of the ancient world. You're familiar with this guy. We're familiar with this guy. Here's the way one historian ends up describing this man who the Pharisees produce. This historian says, Consider these remarkable facts. This man's letters, even in a standard modern translation, occupy fewer than 80 pages. Even taken as a whole, they're shorter than almost any single one of Plato's dialogues or Aristotle's treatises. But it's a safe bet to say that these man's letters, page for page, have generated more comment, 
more sermons and seminars, and more dissertations than any other writings from the ancient world. (laughs) It is as though eight or ten small painting by a single obscure artist would become more sought after, more studied and copied, and more highly valued than all the Rembrandts and Monet's and Van Gogh's in the world. So this little Pharisee school ends up producing this man who writes a few letters that utterly change the ancient world. This man's name is Saul. He's going to get a different name. You know him as Paul in a little bit. But this man, Saul, is he's an unusually gifted little Pharisee. He grows up in Tarsus as a tent maker, which places him basically at the center of the culture of the ancient world. He would, because he built tents, the people who bought tents were the people who traveled. So he would become fluent in a couple different languages. He would become fluent with the cultures and the religions of other nations through making these tents and talking with these these visitors who were coming through and buying tents from him. And Saul wasn't just a tent maker. He was unusually gifted. He advances really, really quickly through the school of the Pharisees. He becomes a leader among the Pharisees, and he becomes a zealous believer. And what that means is that Paul believed, or I guess Saul at this point in time, Saul believed that it was his responsibility to make sure that the divine return would be ushered in by whatever cost necessary, Mm -hmm. any cost necessary, even by violence or force. So that ends up making Paul what he says is zealous, which means that Paul would kill people who behaved in ways that he believed were impeding the divine return to the temple. If there were unfaithful Jews, that was Saul's business. If there were Jews who were praying to Caesar, that was Saul's business. He would discipline or kill anybody in the way of the glory of God returning to the temple. So imagine what he thought when he heard about a small community of Jewish people who were worshiping a criminal who was crucified by Rome, whose name was Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whoa. Dude. And that, dude, that, that's so important to, to understand. Like the, he, it wasn't like this, this uh, new religion popped up. He perceived it as idolatry. He perceived it as right. unfaithful Jews worshiping this dead dude. It needs to be stamped out, right? Here's a historian, quote, From the point of view of Saul, the first followers of Jesus of Nazareth were a prime example of the deviant behavior that had to be eradicated if Israel's God was to be honored. So the big question, which we're not going to answer in this podcast, but we'll answer in a couple weeks, the big question is, how does Saul become Paul? The same historian again says, Saul was a teacher of Jewish traditions, but not the kind of activist who establishes in city after city little cells of unlikely people, many of them non-Jewish, and then fires them with a joyful hope that binds them together. Saul is not the kind of philosopher who teaches people not just new thoughts, but whole new ways of thinking. He's not the kind of spiritual master who rethinks prayer itself from the ground up. So how does it happen? And beyond the initial impact, why was Paul's movement so successful? Why did these little communities founded by a wandering Jew turn into what became the church? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How does this dude, dude. <sighs> who the Pharisees produced, end up establishing what this historian calls 
little cells of unlikely people <laughs> who end up transforming the world. Mm. Dude. Well, how, dude, how does Saul become the author of Romans, which, by the way, is the next book that we're going to study? <laughs> well, first, it just dawned on me that Paul was the original dispensationalist, so that just that just came to me. What? Well, you've got people who think that there has, has to be a, uh, a third temple uh, to oh. be constructed for Jesus to return. Right. And so, they're very wealthy dispensationalists who give money to certain groups and elect certain politicians so that that can happen. So, by any means necessary, they're trying to bring the the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's sorry. Yeah, I that's just, crazy. I just thought that yeah. the way that uh, I never put that connection together. I didn't until just now. <laughs> the divine yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what people are. Anyway, sorry, I just had to get that on the system. Good. That's good. Um, what was the question? How did what what did it take for this Pharisee to become the leader of these unusual, unlikely group of people to transform the world? Yeah, something pretty radical. Something pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. This man who was trying to summons the presence of God back into the temple by any means necessary gets encountered by the presence of God mm-hmm. by any means necessary. He experiences the glory of God and it's outside of the temple. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that, I freaking love the Bible. Me too. Me too. Oh, like, bro. That, the, the irony of, of Paul's, con, of Saul's conversion. He's, yeah. he's on the way to persecute people, to kill people, to imprison people. So that the presence of God returns to the temple, but the presence of God finds him on his way to murder these Christians. And he encounters the presence of God and is blinded by the presence of God. Yeah. The Jesus whom he was persecuting. He inc- yeah. The, the, this radiant, flickering, flaming, bright, luminescent light, the glory of God that descent upon the tabernacle and descent upon the temple and lived in the temple, he encounters it. And it's a person. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus. Does uh, is the historian you're quoting from, does, does that have the part where, um, is he the one who talked about how Saul was probably practicing a traveling meditation on one of Ezekiel's visions? Yeah, let's not do that. Okay, I want right. to do that in a sermon. Okay, I'm right. going to do that in a sermon. Anyway, yeah, yeah. that's it's cool. Wait, that's just a foreshadowing for you guys. I saw, dude, I saw a great meme though. You know, the meme template of, uh, the change my mind. Mm-hmm. It's a guy behind a table and he's drinking a cup of coffee. And the sign says something about changing my mind. Like Chick-fil-A sandwiches are the best sandwiches in the world. Change my mind. There was one where the dude's face was Paul and it said, I'm going to go kill Christians. Change my mind. <laughs> Next slide is Jesus. <laughs> That's a good one. But yeah, dude. Like that. Again, God raising up and appointing people to accomplish his purposes. You know, this, this movement that came out of a reaction to the presence of God not being in the temple, it creates this man who's zealous for the return of God's presence, but he's, he's missed this, this man, Jesus, God in the flesh. He's missed what, what Jesus was about and what Jesus was doing, and it, and it drove him insane to, where, to the point where he was go- murdering Christians, imprisoning Christians, because they were hindering the presence of God. So God's doing all this. He raised up this this man and brought him about to persecute the church 
And in doing so, God orchestrating that led to this man's conversion. And he didn't do away with his with his passion for mm-hmm. for holiness or with his passion for the presence of God. He reoriented it after he after Saul encountered Jesus, mm-hmm. which led to this explosive movement of the early church. This makes me so excited to preach the book of Romans. I'm so psyched. This is gonna be a good one. Is there anything else you want to say about the road from Habakkuk to Jesus? That was kind of a, a windy, twisty, <laughs> turny road all the way from Habakkuk to Jesus, but I enjoyed that trip. I did as well. Um, I don't know, man. I, I just It's just really to see how all of these things are connected. I, I think it's really easy to view the scriptures as just a hodgepodge of of historical accounts, a hodgepodge of some stories, a hodgepodge of genealogies and numbers and rules. Um, but whenever you piece things together like this, when you do biblical theology, you get to see the beautiful tapestry mm-hmm. that the that the scriptures are. You know, if you when you're just in one book, it's easy just to see it as this one book. You're so focused on this tree that you've lost sight of the forest. Yeah. So yeah. D- things like this get me really excited because we you take a step back, a few steps back, and you see how this beautiful forest of the scriptures that we have, and it's interconnected. And it, the things that God was doing in, in overthrowing Judah by raising up the Babylonians led to Jesus coming in the presence of God returning mm-hmm. and filling his... You know, what, what didn't happen at the second temple's construction happened at Pentecost. Right. Like, that's yes. it's so amazing. Oh, can you explain that a little bit more? So, you have... You, you, so you have the second temple. The presence of God is supposed to descend upon it, at where the people, the, the life of the nation, you know, was existing. God was giving them life, and so they would perceive it as, what was the point of even building this thing? And so it's, mm-hmm. it it leads up to, um, you know, Jesus says at his ascension, "Hey, I'm sending one who is greater than me. He's gonna. It, it'd be better for me to depart from you than for my helper." Um, it would, be, it would be better for me to leave so that my helper will come and will fill you. And so these followers are waiting for what's going to happen. And at Pentecost, you have the spirit descending upon these people from all over the world who are, who are there to you know do a, a ritual um, feast and it, it fills them. So it's this picture of like the way that it's uh, recorded is this descent, the spirit of God descending on his people. So right. they are now the temple. As they are, tongues of fire. As tongues of fire. As the glory of God. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, bro. So, and it's the, you know, some other things that we didn't look at from Jeremiah or looking at in, a, you know, some of the other prophets who are um, writing things down in captivity, but of God saying, I'm going to reclaim all the nations. I'm going to, I'm going to bring back all the nations. Well, what did it take for that? It took Jesus coming to reclaim all the nations to now allow the Gentiles to be brought back into the family of God. And at Pentecost, you have that happen. You have the beginnings of God reclaiming the nations. They're now one earthly family that God is inhabiting with his with his spirit. So would it be right to say that the church is the third temple, that the glory of God has descended and filled? Exactly. I mean that's what Paul's picking up on, yeah. right? When he's saying, Hey, you gotta get this. You are the temple. He's yeah. thinking about Pentecost. Conduct yourselves properly. Don't defile the temple of the living God. Right. Wow. Don't live in sin. Don't, you know, you know, be a part of sexual immorality because you're defiling the, it's like going up into a, it's like having an orgy in the, in the temple is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're perverting the temple and God is pretty passionate about his temples being, um, being pure. So it's this, the temple didn't go away. The temple just became people that that God lives inside of. Ah. 
I'm so glad we studied Habakkuk. Yeah, it was good. I feel changed by it. I do as well. Church, the road from Habakkuk to Jesus is a long, bumpy road. From Judah to Babylonian captivity, from Babylonian captivity back to the promised land, from being disappointed and exiled in the promised land to the establishment of a people group who are going to change it, the, the Pharisees. All of this leading to a little energetic Pharisee named Paul, who changes the world with his writing after he meets a man named Jesus. Church, the road is bumpy, but we hope that this podcast helps you see how everything in your Bible is connected to the story of Jesus. And we also hope that this gets you excited for the book of Romans, which we begin preaching and studying together the Sunday after Easter. Love you guys.